We're going to continue our look in the book of Proverbs at the six things that God hates. And so if you have your scriptures with you, please open them to Proverbs chapter 6. And so here now the Word of God. Proverbs 6, and we'll start in verse 12. A worthless person, a scoundrel, a wicked man, a villain, goes about with crooked speech winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, and with a perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity shall come on him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is the word of the Lord can't really tell you how many times I've talked to someone, and I'm sure this has happened to many of you, where the person's actions or words or behavior is uh, perhaps questionable. And you begin to talk to them, and they will say something like this. You know, uh, yes, I'm doing this and this and this, but the Lord knows my what? He knows my heart. As if you could separate what you say, what you do, your actions, your thoughts, and all that from what's in your heart. And that's what I want to talk about today. Dr. Kidner, in his little commentary on the book of Proverbs, and it's a very brief commentary and and helpful in some ways, but Kidner summarizes these seven things that God hates into five basic categories. And that's what we're doing over these weeks. We're looking at these five. The first one we looked at is attitude. The uh, attitude of pride and haughtiness, this high-mindedness that people tend to have, uh, or perhaps a a low esteem, their self-hatred. So pride can go either way. Pride can be self-love and pride can be self-hatred. It can go in either direction. Then he talks about thought, and and Dr. Kidner summarizes these couple passages from 14 and 18 about a heart that devises wicked plans and words, and that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the issue of the heart, and we could spend literally months on this. The Bible has so much to say, but we don't have time, so I'm going to give you a brief overview then during our Sunday school time, we can talk in our as our, we talk about anthropology today. We can look at that, and uh, and maybe in the new year uh, we'll come back to this. I I would really like to do a series following this in the new year, uh, not what God hates, but what He loves, which we can uh, begin to put the two parts uh, together. So let's let's go at it this way. Let's let's talk about what is really what is the heart. And this is going, if you'll listen to me, this is going to challenge many of you. Some of you aren't going to like what you hear, but that's why I am paid these huge, obscene amounts of money, is to get in under your skin. So listen, this can challenge you, but I think it can also help repair 
some of the misconceptions that we have about heart. What is the heart? Secondly, reorienting or reshaping our heart. And finally, who has our heart? So we'll do that under these three headings. What is the heart? Reorienting our heart. And who has uh, our heart? So first of all, what is the heart? If you look at these verses, they're split up into two parts. There's these first verses, 12 through 15, which is a, a unit, if you will. And then there's the second uh, section. This is poetry, and so you look at them as like stanzas or whatever you want to call them, as sections. And in the second section, 16 through 19, is a parallel section. These things are talking about the same thing. And so what he does, the writer, the sage, what he does is he says in the center of these two parallel sections is the heart. Verse 14 and verse 18. He talks about the heart. Listen to this. And I'm going to read a, a section from another commentary by Bruce Walke, who's an authority, an Old Testament scholar and theologian that is unparalleled in the world unparalleled, and, uh, and, and read to you what he has to say in his commentary about the heart. Listen carefully. It's a little long, but it's very technical. I've gotten rid of the technical stuff. I'm going to try to just give you the heart of this, the heart of the heart. Okay, listen. The heart is the most important anthropological term in the Old Testament. Now, that's quite a statement. The most important anthropological term in the Old Testament. But the English, listen folks, the English language has no equivalent. We don't have an equivalent to the Hebrew word leb. There's no equivalent to it. So right away, you should begin to open your presuppositions, I hope, to what you've always thought the heart is. Listen, we'll go on. Heart occurs 46 times in the book of Proverbs. 858 times in the Old Testament. It's an enormously important word. It attributes, heart attributes the psyche's functions, the Bible attributes the psyche's function, the mind, to the heart. Now here's where I'm asking you to really stay awake, bear down, listen, because this can change how you think about yourself how you think about other people. It can revolutionize. I really believe this. It can revolutionize and put back to broken pieces of our essential self. Listen, I'll go on. No other English word combines the complex interplay of intellect, sensibility, and will. The Lord who knows the heart experiences all of its emotions. The heart, listen, the heart also thinks, reflects, ponders, as the eyes were meant to see and the ears to hear, the heart is meant to discern and to prompt action. When a person lacks insight or judgment, the Hebrew speaks of a lack of heart. Not wrong thinking. A lack of heart. The heart, listen to this, the heart plans. It is the inner forum where decisions are made. The heart is at the center of a person's emotional, intellectual, religious, and moral activity. 
It must be safeguarded. We're going to look at that in a moment. Paradoxically, the eyes and the ears are gates to the heart and shape the heart. But at the same time, the heart decides what the eyes and the ears will see and hear. And yet, Proverbs emphasizes the audience's responsibility to choose what it sees and what it hears. Now, if you're tracking with you're asleep, go ahead, doze off and just go to because you've already but if you're tracking with me, you are hopefully seeing where I'm going. We in the West have separated heart and mind. Here's bumper sticker theology for you. The greatest distance in a person's life is from here to where? Here. From here to here, right? That ranks up there with uh, God is my co-pilot for bumper sticker theology. But I promise you, every one of us in the room believes that. We believe that down in our bones, that there is a separation between our head and our heart. Yes? Will you admit that? No? Okay, we'll pray for the other problems you have then. (laughs) No, think about it. We all do that. But listen, the Bible says there is no separation between heart and mind. Everything that's going on in you is happening in your heart. That's where it's going on. The question is, where does those, where do those thoughts and values and commitments, where do they rank in your mind? Your heart doesn't think. Your heart is just a pump. So the Bible is talking about heart and it's using it in a very broad, nuanced, nuanced way that it's everything about you is in your heart. The question is, where does it rank in your heart? We think with our heart. We feel with our heart. We speak with our heart. We decide with our heart. We reason with our heart. We make judgments with our heart. We ponder with our hearts. We act out of our hearts. Okay? Are you with me? I'm trying to put the pieces back together. We'll talk more about it. Listen, I'm going to read you some Scriptures. Don't turn there. If you want the references, I'm happy to give them to you later. I take joy. This is uh, David singing a song. I take joy doing Your will, my God, for Your instructions are written where? On my heart. And if you really look at it, he's saying, I take joy. You see, emotions are in his heart. Your will, his intellect, rationality, reading the Bible, the Word of God, saying, that is on my heart. He's saying, I take delight to do it. I follow your instructions. In other words, he's deciding to obey. Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, it says this, Jesus knew what they were thinking Where? In their heart. They knew what they were thinking in their heart. What what does that mean? Jesus was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. In other words, He saw that it wasn't just up here that they were being stubborn. They were being stubborn up here, which is here. You see what I'm saying? They're together. They're not separated. Keep tracking with me, please. You brood of snakes, he said to the Pharisee. How do you like that? You know, if a pastor got up and said that, he'd get fired today. And probably rightly so. But Jesus didn't care. He would say things like that. You brood of vipers. 
How can evil men like you speak what is good because out of the abundance of your what? The abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. Hearts don't speak. It's your mind that the stuff's going on. So what's in abundance in your heart, your mind, the essential you? What's really percolating in there? You'll hear it. It will be spoken, Jesus said. And then the writer of Hebrews. The Word of God is active, sharper, dividing soul, spirit, joints, marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, in your heart is where motives are. The heart is where your thinking is. The heart is where your rationality is. The heart is where your pondering is, your reasoning. All of the parts of you, all of what goes on inside a human being are said to be in the heart. So what I want you to do is think in terms of heart and mind being together. Being one thing. And we'll talk a little bit more. I'll help you. Uh, I hope it'll help you to put back some of the broken pieces. Tim Keller, who uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods and Idolatry, Keller actually attributes his, his thinking in this direction, which is more well known, he attributes it to Dr. Walkie and to Tremper Longman and a couple of other Old Testament scholars who for years have been trying to get the church to understand that heart is you. That mind is not something over here and heart something over here, but that they are together. And how they're oriented, how the mind and heart, all all those pieces fit together is extremely complex. And so we often will say, well, you know, he's a thinker. She's a what? A feeler. Which is, it's a dichotomy, folks, that splits us apart. We start to think as people as being rational or emotional. Right? Instead of seeing people as being rational and emotional. Right? And how those pieces fit together inside of you as a complex human being is how you're going to live and act and think about a lot of things. And the Bible, if what Walke is saying is true, that it's the most important anthropological term in the entire Old Testament, then wouldn't we be wise to look at what's going on inside of all of that complexity that we call the heart? Keller says this, listen, heart to English speakers means emotions. Yes? Heart to English speakers means emotions. But the Bible also says that the heart is where we think, will, choose, motives, plans, decisions. The Bible's view of human nature is revolutionary. It is different than what you find in other human systems of thought. Wouldn't you expect that? Wouldn't you expect that God would come to us with a complex and nuanced view of who you are? After all, folks, we are created how? In His image. Would you expect God to be schizophrenic? Of course not. He is a unit. He is a person put together whole. And what what I think plagues so many of us is we live schizophrenic lives. We don't trust our feelings. Reformed people especially. Oh, you can't trust your feelings. Oh, really? Has your mind ever played tricks on you? Say yes. 
Of course. Have you ever, have you ever caught yourself in wrong thinking? Well, yeah. Listen, I have told you folks for as many years as I've been here, going on 13 years, I have said this to you. That when God saved you, He saved all of you. He didn't just save your mind. He saved your feelings. He didn't just save your mind and your feelings. He saved your body. What is the resurrection all about if it's not saving your body? Yes? He saved all of you. And He means to put you back together. And the sage is taking us right to it. The wicked man thinks and crafts and he's planning like an artist like a craftsman, he's, he's shaping wicked plans. And so doesn't it stand to reason that God wants you and I to be just as intense about shaping our heart? What we think, how we feel, how we ponder, how we reflect, how we judge, what, what's going on inside of us. In all of these very complicated ways, the heart, I'm Keller again, the heart is metaphor for the seat of our most basic orientations, our deepest commitments, what we trust, what we love, what we hope, what we treasure, what fills our vision. Every heart has an inclination. So heart controls everything. Our thinking, feeling, decisions, actions, what we most love, what we find reasonable, desirable, doable, whatever we cherish in our hearts most controls the whole person. So Dr. Walkie's absolutely right. The heart is of utmost importance. And sometimes we don't understand our hearts. Yes, they can be confusing to understand what's going on. But it's because we don't understand our mind. We don't understand our values. We're not willing to go deeper into them. And I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to be able to take us down there a little bit as we look at the second point. Reorienting a biblical heart. How do you reorient a biblical heart? Instead of separating heart and mind, how do we reorient our heart? How do we do that? The Greeks and the Romans said that, the, that the, the Greeks and Romans had this idea that the great human struggle was between the mind, the psyche, and they believed that the mind was resident where? Do you know? That it was resident in the soul. Okay? And that the passions were resident where? In the body. And so the Greeks and Romans, this is what Epicureanism and Stoicism, and I don't want to get into all the philosophy, but think about it for a minute, folks. The, the Greeks and Romans said, you know, heart is, is your emotions and mind is your rationality. And heart, all your passions, they're held in your body. So how do you become a good human being? How do you become a good human being? Think right, do right, be right. Yes? How many of you like that? How many of you love that? Think right, do right, be right. Well, if you love that, you're in great company. You're right up there with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody else. <laughs> you cannot think and do your way into being. You don't pray the Lord's Prayer, folks, to get God to be your Father. 
Are you listening? You pray the Lord's Prayer. Why? Because He is your Father. Our Father. First words. Not please be my Father. But our Father. It's a presupposed condition upon your addressing Him. Our Father. That would have crashed in on the minds and hearts of these of these disciples like, like a tsunami. Our Father. You see? Being always... J.I. Packer just said it in one of his going away uh, uh, videos that he's making and putting up on YouTube. Dr. Packer said, being always precedes doing. Otherwise, you don't have Christianity anymore. You just have religion. And I'll tell you, religion will beat you up. It'll wear you down to a nub until there's just nothing left. But grace will lift you up. Jesus will pick you up. He'll make you something. And then He'll appeal to you the rest of your days. Be who you are. Step into the clothes I have fashioned for you. Be my son. Be my daughter. Be my people. Follow His way of saying it was what? Follow me. Do you see it, folks? The Greeks and Romans separated this, but the the Bible teaches that the human struggle occurs within a single entity. It is what is going on inside your heart. How do you reorient the heart? Quickly, let let me just give you a couple things. First of all, you, if you have... If you have embraced Jesus Christ and repented of your sin and believed the Gospel, what is the first thing that happens to you? What becomes new about you? You have a new heart. If I asked you this morning, how many of you believe that your heart is wicked and deceitful and beyond any hope of repair or understanding? Most of us would raise our hands because we have been taught that that is the nature of the Christian. That you have a dualistic nature. That you're evil. That your heart is dark and black. Well, All I have to say to you is be born again. Today, repent of your sin and believe the Gospel so that you can get a new heart. Yes, don't you want a new heart? That's how you get it. Does the heart have old habits and patterns that need to be broken? Is there a struggle in the old man and the new? Is there? Yes, of course. But you are a new creature in Christ if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Him. You have a new heart. Listen, again, real quickly. I will give them a new heart, a new spirit. I'll remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Do you have a heart of stone today or a heart of flesh? Which do you have? You have a heart of flesh. Otherwise, you wouldn't care about the sins that plague you or wear you down. Yes? You wouldn't care. you go, hey, well, bring me more. I want all of that I can get. What is going against that? It's the new heart that's crying out because he loves the law of God. The heart is vibrating now. It's beating to the beat of the drum of God's heart. Are you seeing it? And that's where all of a lot of the, the conflict comes from because he puts us into tension. And He wants us to start going at those things and rooting them out and facing them and admitting them. That's what repentance is. Saying, you know what? I've got this thing in my life. I don't know what to do. I'm going to repent. And how many times might you have to repent? How many? I mean, even your kids know how many. Seven times 70. So you have to repent 490 times. 
And you can keep it very easily in your iPhones and iPads and stuff. I mean, you can count them down so that you know. When you get close, when you get to 489, you know, you go, oh my goodness, I only have one more chance. Of course not. Seven times 70 means there's, it's an infinite amount of times. It's a multiply, it's a geometric progression. So you may have to go to God. I, look, I have sins in my life. They're not what you think. But I have sins in my life I'm going to be repenting of till the day I die. Yes? And you will too. Things like pride and self-protection and, and, uh, and self-hatred, self-loathing. You know, I'll never be good enough. I'll never be the pastor that Christ the King needs or wants. I'll never be the kind of husband that my wife, although I'm an unbelievably great husband, I'll never be... <laughs> You see, we're always, we're always going to have to face those demons, folks, and it's okay. But we have a new heart. I'll give them a new heart to know that I'm the Lord. They'll return to me with their old heart. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old's passed away. Behold, a Jew is not one inwardly, but one, a Jew is not one outwardly, but one inwardly. Circumcision, Paul said, is of the what? The heart. Do you see? The new identity comes from God changing the essential you. Giving you a new heart. So you're not a wicked sinner. You're a Christian sinner. Simul justus et peccator. That's what Luther said. We are at the same time justified and sinner. But our essential nature has been changed. And folks, that's where our hope lies is in that new heart. So how do you reorient the new heart? You've got to pay attention to wisdom. Look, here's what he says. In, in, in chapter 4, one of the most important verses in the Bible, I think, but especially in Proverbs. And kids, how, how, I want, uh, just kids, listen to me, young, young kids. How many of you are five years old or, or older? Five years old or older? Uh, yeah. See, a few of the adults got it, but the rest of you are just... <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. Listen, kids, if you know, it, chill, I'm talking now to the, the little ones and, and the little older. If you know that you're five years old, if you already know that kind of stuff, you know you're five years old, or maybe you know you're four years old. You may be, it's good too. But if you know how old you are, then you're old enough to understand this, kids. Listen, this is for all the young people and the, and the older ones too. But listen, my child... You hear the tenderness in those words? My child, pay attention to what I say. Listen carefully to my words. Don't lose sight of them. Let them penetrate deep into your what? heart. For they bring life to those who find them, healing to their body. Guard your heart above all else, for out of your heart determines the course of your entire life. Those of us that have mileage on our lives, we know that that is absolutely true. Yes? For good or ill. But kids, listen. Out of your heart will determine the whole course of your life. Avoid perverse talk, corrupt speech, look straight ahead, fix your eyes on what lies before you. Oh, the beauty of that. 
Mark straight paths for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. He defines it. Evil. Jonathan Edwards said this in Affections, Religious Affections. A very hard book to read, but here's what he said. Listen to this, folks. These affections, the heart, we see the springs... Listen to his language here. Beautiful. The springs that set men a-going. In other words, the motives. The springs that set men a-going in all the affairs of life. He's saying that what's going on in your heart and your mind, you see, because they're together, what that thinking that is rolling around in there all the time in our being sets the springs of our life a-going. They are the motion that moves us ahead, the religious affections. We're studying Augustine's confessions on Monday night, and my brother's doing a great job. Those of you that aren't there are really missing out. But maybe we can impose on him to do another one uh, in, a few, in a few months. In Augustine's confessions, towards the end, in the 13th chapter, Augustine says this, To whom should I speak and how should I express myself about the passions that drag us headlong into the deep and the charity that uplifts us to the Spirit? She's saying, what is going on inside my passions that's driving me down into sin or lifting me up, my heart up to, to love and to charity? To whom should I say this? And in what terms? Now listen, here's Augusta, the brilliance of St. Augustine. They are not literally places. He's saying, you know, these aren't places that I, I go. This is something more than that. Brilliant. They are not literally places. They are movements of the heart. They are two loves. All occurring in the same place. They are two loves. One is the uncleanness of, of our own spirit, which like a flood tide sweeps us down in love with restless cares. Do you see? Restless cares weighing down our mind, our heart. The other bears us upward in love for peace beyond all care, that our hearts may be lifted up to you. Isn't that beautiful? What he's saying is all the things that are going on in your life that are moving, they're just not, just not thinking, just not wrong thinking. It's wrong heart thinking. There are things in our minds that's moving us in directions we don't want to go. Thomas Chalmers talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. The, 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 the expulsive power of a new affection, folks, is reorienting your heart, to love what God loves, to hate what He hates, to change your thinking about a lot of things. And in fact, if He's not changing your thinking about race, about politics, about what's right and wrong in this crazy, crazy, nutty world that we live in right now, if He's not challenging you and disrupting some of your presupposed views, then something's wrong. He is always challenging us, our presuppositions. No one in this room is right about everything that they believe, except me. No, yeah, I'm joking. You understand what I'm saying? God is always going to challenge your presuppositions about a lot of things, and some of those can be very distressing. 
But be expecting that because He wants to always be reorienting your heart. So, let's close. Look, I, I could go on and on, but I hope you get the idea. Who has your heart? Look at verse 18. It says, a heart that devises evil. This word in Hebrew, devises, means it's, it, he, used, he borrows a term from a craftsman, an artist, who is not just your ordinary, you know, kind of, you know, cut a two by four in half. That's not an artist. An artist is someone who takes a, a, a piece of granite or a, a piece of wood and sculptures it with incredible skill and plans and thinks. Or an artist who paints a picture and spends perhaps a dozen canvases or paper on sketches until he gets just the feeling that he wants. And then he mixes his, his paints and gets just the right brushes and just the right mood. Perhaps he's got you know some beautiful classical piece of music. Uh, am I channeling you yet, Dave? <laughs> you, know, you, you get some beautiful piece of music and then you start putting it all down onto the canvas and it comes together, there's some intention and thought. He uses a word there that for the wicked that are doing that, that's how they are crafting the evil plans and devising. They're doing it with skill. And so the implication is that He wants us to use the same kind of intensity, folks, to think, to reason with our heart, to reorient in our hearts what is really important and what may be not so important. Why do we worry? We often worry about things that are very unlikely to happen, yes? Right? And there are things that really might happen that we are also worrying about, but we tend to push everything up into the top of the cone of certainty, right? We tend to push everything up there and make them all of equal importance, so we're always worried about everything. And consequently, we're just worried. A heart that devises evil and wicked plans, a heart that's planning. And, it, and the sage is saying by, by his wisdom, he's saying you also are going to be crafting and reorienting your heart all the time. So the question, the third question is, who has your heart? Well, if the sage is talking about a craftsman, let me tell you, I want you to hear this final word about another craftsman. An artisan who has taken your heart and made it alive. In other words, it was stone and now it's soft flesh. It's beating. It's pumping life, blood into you. And that artist, that craftsman loves that heart. He loves you. And He means to do good to you. He has taken your heart and He's going to shape it. And we often despair. We think, oh, God's not working. Yes, He's at work in you. Listen, for by grace have you been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For what? We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus, who has your heart, the great artist and the great craftsman, and he is going about shaping your heart for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He who began a good work in you will what? What? He will complete it. He is at work in you. Do not despair. 
How do we know? How do we know that God is that committed to your heart to reshape and reform and take away the disfigurement and the ugliness and the filth and the wickedness? How do you know? Because Jesus, the ultimate beauty of this world and this universe, the ultimate heart, was disfigured and broken and crushed for you, as you, on the cross. Many, the writer that wrote, he, the, the Isaiah writer, Many were astonished at you. His appearance, so marred, beyond human recognition. On the cross, Jesus so beaten, so battered, so wounded, so crushed, so scarred, that He was beyond resemblance to a human being. His form beyond anything known to the children of man. And so, or in other words, by that, thereby He shall sprinkle the nations. That is a word of redemption. That is Moses taking the blood with the branch of hyssop, dipping it and slinging the blood out to the people like this. And so when a drop hit them, They were baptized. Do you see it? Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. For that which has not been told them, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, they will understand. Do you see that Jesus Christ meant to come and get that wicked heart? Change it from stone to flesh reshape it and spend a lifetime with you in all of your pain and all of your struggles, reshaping that disfigurement, fixing that broken heart, that wounded heart. Why and how did He do it? Where's the power for it? The power is that He gave Himself in His heart for you and for me. Will you trust Him with that? Will you do it? Quit seeing yourselves as somebody that's not worthy. We know that already. He came for the unworthy like you and I. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You'll lift us up. Some of us are in deep, deep waters. We're struggling with our sin and our doubt and our fears and the disfigurement that we remember so well of our past lives. I pray, Father, that You will heal the hearts of many today. Put us back together, the brokenness that's in us. Let us reorient our love to You and to all that is holy and good that You have put before our eyes. The beauty of Your holiness. And lift us up, Father, as we come to Your table to eat the bread of life and drink this wine that refreshes us. I pray, Father, that You will do that. For Christ's sake in our lives, please do it. Amen.